What is up, my beautiful star seeds? Welcome back to another episode of Sophie's Corner, an educational podcast that explores the paths of healing and justice for survivors of sexual assault and rape. Here, we aim to understand the different processes a survivor may go through on their individualized path towards rehabilitation. Welcome back, lovelies. If you listened to my last episode, then you are fully aware of how dense it was. Oh my goodness. We broke down the justice system and we got into the nitty gritty of what it would look like for a survivor to bring forward either a criminal case or a civil case. We talked about the lawyers involved. We talked about the processes involved. And I hope we also got our noggins thinking about what we can do to better improve that establishment, better improve that system so that we can decrease the amount of cases that are just swept under the rug and the amount of cases that do not see the justice that they deserve. We know based on statistics that I've quoted in earlier episodes that cases of rape and cases of sexual assault are severely underreported across all demographics. So while I'm going to get into step-by-step what it would look like to report to law enforcement, I also want to spark up the conversation of why people don't report. What are the societal issues that are keeping people from coming forward? What underlying issues are inhibiting people to speak out against such vicious crimes? All right, let's get right into it. Reporting to law enforcement. So probably other than getting a rape kit done, this is one of the first steps that a survivor is going to take in order to further their investigation. Of course, you absolutely do not have to have a rape kit done in order to report. It just, it might help your case later down the line. As we heard in the last episode, the legal system is very finicky with the types of cases that they're going to actually allow in the criminal court. However, if a survivor is serious about pressing charges, Reporting to law enforcement is a paramount step. Survivors have several options for reporting a sexual assault. First and foremost, they can always call 911 if they are in immediate danger. That is the best course of action if a survivor is in immediate danger. Second, they can contact the local police department. So they can either call the direct line of their local police station or they can visit the station in person, whatever works best for them. And if they're on a college campus, they can contact campus-based law enforcement. The third way to report a sexual assault is if they visit a medical care center and they're being treated for injuries resulting from a sexual assault, they can tell a medical care professional that they wish to report a crime. The police officers that will respond to these calls are specifically trained to deal with sexual assault survivors. Sometimes they might be a part of a sexual assault response team or a SART. SARTs are awesome and they are a collaboration of medical personnel, law enforcement, and sexual assault services in the survivor's area that collaborate to progress the investigation in a way that reduces the amount of repetition of interviews and questions, and it streamlines communication between all the agencies involved. Let's talk about some things that you should know about the law enforcement process. So first and foremost, you may be asked to speak with law enforcement several times throughout an investigation. The questions may come across as personal, invasive, annoying, 
and it may be hard to feel comfortable or understand the goals behind the law enforcement process. Law enforcement officers have been trained on the impact of trauma, so they should know not to immediately discredit a victim based on their behavior. They understand that trauma can make people act in out-of-pocket ways, and so oftentimes they'll schedule follow-up sessions to check to make sure that the details are accurate. Their primary focus is proving lack of consent. If a case goes to trial, one of the defense's favorite arguments to make is that consent couldn't be proven one way or another, which pokes way too many holes in the prosecution's case. So the police officers are trying to narrow down exactly what happened so that the survivor has a better chance in court. Police officers are well aware of four common sexual assault defense strategies that make the prosecution's case Swiss cheese. The first one is denial. So in order to counter denial, the denial argument, police officers need to collect and document evidence to establish that a non-sexual contact did occur. The second argument is identity. So in order to counter identity, the police officers are sure to preserve DNA samples from the victim and the suspect, as well as document any witness statements. The third argument is consent. To counter the consent argument, police officers need to document fear, force, threat, coercion, and any inability to consent. Finally, the fourth argument that the defense loves to make is impeachment of contradiction. So in order to contradict the impeachment of contradiction, law enforcement needs to document any changes that the victim might present after the original statements, especially if additional details are added following the trauma. The aspects of a police report for a sexual assault or a rape case will include a tracking number for the case, as well as a written narrative based on the interview with the victim. The report will contain a description of the assault, indication of force, lack of consent, signs of premeditation, and a timeline and victim response. There is no limitation on when a victim can report a crime to the police. However, it is important to keep in mind that with some cases, especially rape and sexual assault cases, statute of limitations applies, and once that runs out, the police really can't do anything. Statutes of limitation vary state by state, the type of crime, age of the victim, and are dependent on a lot of other external factors. For the state of Washington, the statute of limitations for rape in the first degree is within the time limit of 20 years after commission of the offense. If the victim is under 16, there is no time limit. Sexual misconduct charges in Washington have a tendency to have a time limit of under three years after the commission of the offense. Of course, statute of limitations varies state by state, so make sure to check what your state mandates. Now that we've laid the groundwork of what the reporting process looks like, how to get into contact with law enforcement, what kind of questions they're going to be asking, and why they're asking those questions, we can dive into why rape and sexual assault are some of the most underreported crimes in the United States. About two-thirds of victims know their perpetrator, which can make it extraordinarily difficult to come forward and report because it might jeopardize their home life, there's a good possibility that they might see this person on a day-to-day -day basis. There's a lot of fear and trepidation around coming forward when the victim is so close to the perpetrator. 
The survivor may also have concerns about reporting if the perpetrator got away or stopped before finishing the assault, if the survivor was in an intimate relationship or has been in a relationship with the perpetrator in the past, if the survivor has no physical injuries, they may be concerned that there's not enough proof. They also may be concerned that law enforcement won't believe them or they don't want to get in trouble. Sometimes minors are afraid of being disciplined by either law or by their parents because they were doing something that maybe they shouldn't have been doing during the time of the attack, like drinking alcohol, for example. According to Rain, between the years 2005 to 2010, victims gave the following reasons for not reporting. 20% feared retaliation. 13% believed the police would not do anything to help. 13% believed it was a personal matter. 8% reported to a different official. 8% believed it was not important enough to report. 7% did not want to get the perpetrator in trouble. 2% believed the police could not do anything to help. And 30% gave another reason or did not cite a reason. With that said, between the years 2005 and 2010, the survivors who chose to report gave the following reasons for doing so. 28% chose to report to protect the household or victim from further crimes by the offender. 25% to stop the incident or prevent recurrence or escalation. 21% to improve police surveillance or they believed that they had a duty to do so. 17% to catch, punish, and prevent offender from reoffending. 6% gave a different answer or declined to cite for a reason. 3% did so to get help or recover loss. As we see by these statistics, there's no right or wrong way to go about reporting. Everyone has their own reasons for either doing it or not doing it. What those statistics don't show is the societal pressures that play into whether or not a person reports. The topic of sexual assault and sexual abuse is taboo in our society. Nobody wants to talk about it. No one wants, really wants to define what it is in common settings, in educational settings even. And that's quite problematic because if a young person experiences rape or experiences sexual assault, they don't necessarily have the language to identify what happened to them. Without the proper language and without the proper understanding of what happened to the person, how do we expect them to come forward and then go through the entire process of reporting, going to court, all of that? There is intense shame tied to the idea that someone may have been sexually assaulted or raped. And that shame has nothing to do with the person, the survivor whatsoever. The shame has everything to do with the society that doesn't want to acknowledge that it's entrenched in a very patriarchal way of thinking. Where women are victimized on the daily by men in power and then the power structures that are set up to defend and help and seek justice, quote-unquote, for sexual assault and rape are dominated by men in power. Of course it's nerve-wracking to report. Of course it is. Because the rhetoric around victims does nothing to support the victim. 
but does everything to blame the victim. The rhetoric of boys will be boys, the rhetoric of oh, she came forward because she wanted attention, is so prevalent in our society that it shames women and it shames victims into staying silent. The Kavanaugh trial is a perfect example of why victims do not feel comfortable coming forward in this country. The absolute ludicrous of it all is that why on earth would a woman or a victim report something when they know that they're putting their career, their livelihood, their reputation on the line? Why would they come forward to lie about something when they know they have so much to lose? And yet, here we are in 2020, 2021, still victim shaming and believing the rhetoric that People who come forward, even years after their attack, are simply doing so for attention. The process of reporting is traumatic within itself. Going through the arduous process of answering the questions of the police re-traumatizes the victim if it's not done properly. Yes, some police will conduct that interview in a way that is very sensitive, very caring. But that's not always the case. Most of the time, the police are aware that that case might not be picked up by the DA's office, might not be prosecuted, and so they don't necessarily feel the need to go step by step and take their time. Right? There's a backlog of rape kits that are just sitting on shelves. Nothing is being done. These are cold rape cases. Victims go get a rape kit done, which is intrusive. They go, they report, nothing comes of it. Why would somebody want to come forward and be re-traumatized through our justice system only for nothing to come of it and for more than one person to look, hear, see what that survivor has gone through and do nothing about it. Now, I am not necessarily blaming individual law enforcement for making the experience of a survivor coming forward absolute hell because they go through specialized training and they do. They try their darndest to prioritize the well-being of the victim, but that is just not how our system is set up. Our system is not set up to help victims of sexual assault. Our society does nothing to help the matter either. I was speaking earlier about rhetoric. Some more examples of rhetoric are when a woman decides to come forward or decides to speak up about her rape. Some commonly asked questions are, what was she wearing? What was she drinking? Well, how has she acted in the past? My question for the people who think like this is at what point does the length of your skirt invite violence to be perpetrated on your body without your consent. Don't get me wrong. False reporting is absolutely a real thing. 10% of all rape cases are false reporting. False reporting should not be tolerated under any circumstance. 
However, can we not forget the 90% that is telling the truth about their horrific experience? Why are we okay as a society completely ignoring the fact that a large chunk of our population is walking around traumatized? Men, women, children, and our justice system, the way that everything is set up, just isn't doing it right. It's just not meeting the needs. Too many cases are falling, are are just falling between the cracks. And whether that's because they don't want to come forward because of the way that they think about things, or they think that they're going to be judged, or whatever, societal factors, or if it's because they did come forward, they did get their rape kit done, they did report, they did go to trial, and the criminal justice system just simply couldn't handle their case correctly because within the system, there just is no justice for that circumstance. Why are we okay accepting that? I'm going to end my rant and my questions there, but with all of this said, our criminal justice system isn't a total loss. Out of the 230 cases that are reported to police, 4.6 rapists will be incarcerated. That is not none. That is better than zero. So our criminal justice system does work. But there's a gigantic discrepancy in those numbers. And it is beneficial for us as a society to continue to push the status quo and think about what we can do to improve those numbers and what we can do to encourage victims to come forward and accept them as a community, as a society. The Me Too movement has worked wonders for breaking down barriers surrounding this concept. I think there is a an evolving mindset, a changing mindset for future generations that allows them to more openly talk about sexual assault and rape in a way that past generations could never do. Once we get a topic like this out in the open and as a society we're able to have transparent and honest conversations about generational trauma and individual trauma, I believe the stigma and the fear and the shame will eventually fall away and be replaced by a new mindset that's focused on healing and mutual support. And I hope that those conversations and I hope that that shift in a mindset towards victims and what it means to be a victim or what it means to be a survivor will translate into direct action then that that then changes the criminal justice system and the proceedings that feed into the criminal justice system. I'm stoked for the future. I think that there are definitely some positive changes on the horizon and we just need to continue to talk, we need to continue to work, and we need to continue to support each other. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. And as always, I'm here to remind you that your soul is beautiful, your soul is powerful, and your soul is absolutely indestructible. The next three episodes in this podcast series are going to be focused on the healing aspect of rehabilitation. Tune in to the next episode where I interview an equine therapist and she talks about the benefits of working with animals and healing PTSD.